Today we have the wonderful and yet somewhat sorrowful privilege of coming to the penultimate podcast of the Sermon on the Mount. We finish next podcast after 38 podcasts. Now all through the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6 and 7, the Lord has been setting the divine standards of his kingdom. As the anointed Messiah, the Christ, the King, he has certain principles which he has demanded of those who desire to enter the kingdom. Now, these principles occupy the thrust of this sermon, but they can all be summed up in one word. The requirement for entering the kingdom is that you be righteous. Yes, righteous. And therefore, the whole sermon is summed up in chapter 5, verse 20, when it says, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. May you walk in the spiritual subsequently. Turn with me in your Bible to Matthew 7. Our text today from Matthew 7, verses 21 to 29. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 29. Let me read this to you as the setting for the next 45 minutes and ask that the Spirit of God would speak to us in these tremendous truths. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, beat on that house, and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The kingdom of heaven is God's world, God's dominion, salvation, eternal life. And entrance into that kingdom is dependent upon righteousness. How righteous are we to be? Well, we are to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. How righteous were they? They were as righteous as a man could get on his own terms. They had come to the epitome of human achievement in religion. They were obsessed with religious function. As far as the people around them knew, they were exceedingly righteous. They seemed to do all the right things, like praying and giving alms and fasting. They seemed to have all the right standards, like not murdering and not committing adultery and making sure they maintained every minute minute element of the law. It seemed as though they were the ones who were exceedingly righteous and yet, The righteousness that Christ demands far exceeds theirs. 
In fact, our Lord is requiring a righteousness that is beyond man's capacity, a divine righteousness that comes from God, a standard that man himself is utterly unable to attain. If you want to know how righteous, all you have to do is look at chapter 5, verse 48. And here our Lord says, Be ye therefore perfect. And how perfect? Even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. We are to be righteous. How righteous? More righteous than most than the most righteous. We are to be perfect. How perfect? As perfect as God is. Now, if you really hear that message, you are going to face a fact. And that is that you can't leave this standard. You cannot be more righteous than the most righteous people on your own. Because the most righteous people are as righteous as people can be on their own. You can't be more righteous than that. And you cannot be as perfect as God is perfect because you are a human being. And so all through the sermon, Jesus is endeavoring to show men the inadequacy of their own human resources to deal with God's kingdom. They can't make it. Therefore, the whole idea of the sermon is to bring them to the very point at which our Lord started. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst for after righteousness. In other words, the Lord said at the very beginning that the people who enter my kingdom are the people who know their own righteousness does not make it. That the standard of perfection is way beyond their capacity and so they are beggars in their spirit. They can't earn it. They have to beg for it. They mourn because the total sinfulness that they see in themselves is immense. They are meek and humble because they know they fall short of the standard of God and they hunger and thirst for a righteousness they know they can't attain. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount then is identical to the purpose of the law of God in the Old Testament. When God gave the law on Sinai, the law was not given in order to show man how good he must be. The law was given to show man how good he couldn't be, how bad he was, how short he came. And Paul summed it up when he said, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Paul says that the law was our schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. The law was what whipped us. And that is essentially what is going on in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is upholding the law of God. In fact, he says at the early part of the sermon, not one jot or tittle shall in any wise pass from the law. I did not come to remove the law or to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. You either come on your terms or his terms. And that is precisely where the sermon climaxes in chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And there our Lord says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be that go that way, because narrow is the gate, and hard is the way which leads into life, and few there be that find it. Jesus says there are only those two ways. There is the broad gate that leads to the broad way, ends up in destruction. It is the way of easy religion. It is the way of human righteousness. It is the way of the scribes and the Pharisees and those who think they are good enough on their own. On the other hand, 
there is the kingdom, there is the narrow gate and the narrow way that leads to life. And that is the way of those who come with a broken heart, with a contrite spirit, those who come and know they can't make it. They can't keep God's law. They can't meet his standard. They can't live up to his righteousness. They can't be as perfect as God is. And they cast themselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ, who imputes to them his own righteousness. There's only those two ways. And that is the climax of the sermon. Now, having stated that great invitation to enter at the narrow gate, the Lord then shows how difficult that really is. It's not easy. Don't believe anyone who says it's easy to become a Christian. It costs God everything, including his own son. And it will cost you, it will cost you the same thing, including yourself. It's not easy. And those who would offer us easy believism, a cheap grace, do us no favor at all. They delude us. It is difficult to come to God on God's terms. First of all, it is difficult because you must recognize your own total inability. And that means the death of pride. And that's difficult because we are constantly told that we are the most important thing to ourselves. Now the Lord points out the difficulty of entering into the narrow gate. Right in verses 13 and 14 of Matthew 7. First of all, it says in verse 14, Few there be that find it. And the word find is important. It's difficult to enter the narrow gate because you have to find it, which implies a searching and a looking and an examining and an effort. It's as the Old Testament says, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. Nobody just stumbles along and falls into the kingdom of God inadvertently. It's a searching and the idea is that it isn't easily made visible. Secondly, it's difficult not only because you have to find it, and that means a hard and diligent search. It's difficult because it means it's the opposite way that everyone else is going. Many go in the broad gate, few go in the narrow way. It's what James said when he said, friendship with the world is enmity against God. It's what John said when he said, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. In other words, you have to come apart from the system to enter the narrow gate. It's difficult because the crowd is going the other way. It's difficult also because it is a narrow gate and that means you come through naked, stripped of all yourself, your sin, your self-righteousness. You come through absolutely alone. You don't come through with a group. You don't come through with a family. You come through alone and it is a constricted way and you know it's going to be a narrow life. You must count the cost. And Jesus said further, it's not only difficult because it's hard to find, it's way, it's away from the crowd. It's a narrow gate, but because you must agonize to enter it. He said in the Gospel of Luke, in other words, there must be penitence and confession and repentance and soul searching and brokenness. And then in our last study, we saw that there is another reason why it's difficult to enter the narrow gate, narrow way. Another reason why it's difficult to admit that you don't make it, you can't live up to God's standard. You are not as perfect as you have to be. And that is because of false prophets. Verse 15, 
And in verse 15 to 20, the Lord says, false prophets add to the difficulty because they stand in the way and they chase people into the broad road. They are the ones trying to divert everyone for Satan's purposes and Satan's ends, telling people they, are, they, they can go through the wide gate with all their sin and selfishness and they can flop from side to side and wander all over a great wide, big wide road and there is little price to pay. And so the Lord offers a choice and a verdict, a decision, but he says the right decision is to enter the narrow gate. It won't be easy, he says. Few there be that find it. Mark that people, few, not many, but few. And there is one other reason why the few is, not, is only few. Not only the deception of the false prophets, but listen to this one, self-deception. Self-deception keeps people from ent entering the narrow gate. Our Lord says it is not just the false prophets that deceive us into believing we are Christians when we are not, but we can deceive our own selves into believing we are Christians when the fact is we are not. Now that precisely is the issue the Lord takes up in verses 21 to 27, self-deception. And what a fitting climax it is to the sermon. Having stated all the principles and having warned about the false prophets, the Lord says, now let me warn you one other thing. Make sure you are not kidding yourself. Are you really a true member of the kingdom of heaven? And the Lord warns us about two categories of self-deception. Number one is mere verbal profession. And number two is mere intellectual knowledge. In verses 21 to 23, it is a verbal profession. Verse 21 says, not everyone that saith. Verse 22 says, many will say to me. Now, these are the people who make the verbal profession. They say they are Christians. And then in the second paragraph, it is the ones who have only, who have only an intellectual knowledge. They hear. Verse 26, everyone that hears these things. Now listen, then in verse 21 to 23, you have the people who say and don't do, and in verses 24 to 27, the people who hear and don't do. That's the issue, and they are deceived. On the one hand, it's a verbal profession. On the other, it's an intellectual knowledge. So I call it empty words and empty hearts. And that's what we want to speak in our study today. We'll speak about empty words today, and next podcast, our last podcast, will speak about empty hearts. These deal with the matter of self-deception, mere verbal profession, mere intellectual knowledge. As John Stott puts it, a camouflage of disobedience, end quote. You will notice that at the end of verse 21, you have a key word there. But he that doeth the will of my Father, who is in heaven. It is not the ones who say, it is not the ones who hear, it is the ones who do. In other words, the Lord is saying, if you do not live a righteous life, I don't care what you say or what you hear, you are deceived. That this is a very, very strong word. And I want you to listen as the Spirit of God speaks. Both of these closing paragraphs, verses 21 to 23 and verses 24 to 27, contrast a right and a wrong response to the invitation of Christ. 
and they show that our eternal destiny is determined by the choice we make. One, as I said, deals with what you say over against what you do, and the other, what you hear over against what you do. Keep this in mind. The Lord is not speaking to irreligious people. He is speaking to people who were literally obsessed with religious activity. They are not apostates. They are not heretics. They are not anti-God. They are not atheists or agnostics. They are utterly religious people, but they are damned because they are on the wrong road and they are self-deluded. Maybe their self-delusion is a result of sitting under a false prophet, or maybe they are actually sat under the truth, but have deluded themselves. They are not a lot unlike Israel, of whom Paul said, they had a form of godliness, but denied the reality of it. And I really believe that this is a message that needs to be spoken today, because I am convinced that the Church of Jesus Christ is literally jammed full of people who aren't Christians and don't know it. I mean, when I hear statistics like 2 billion plus people in the world are Christians and over 2 billion are not, then I wonder who the who in the world has established this criteria. That isn't what the Bible says. It says many and few. When Gallup says, according to his poll, that 52% of the Nigerian population are born-again Christians, that doesn't square up with scripture. And who is going to live under the delusion that because you sign a line on a survey that says you are a born-again Christian, you really are a born-again Christian? Certainly Jesus is saying many of those who think they are in aren't in, and only a few are. This is the ultimate delusion, people. You could be deluded about a lot of things, but to be deceived about whether you're a Christian, that's, to, that's really getting at your eternal destiny. And so Jesus says, you better check it very carefully. We have all kinds of people, I'm sure, listening, who are connected to the right religion and utterly devoid of the righteousness of God through Christ. We have multitudes of deceived people who are in the church, who are in on the Jesus bandwagon, who think everything is well, and for them, judgment is going to be one big surprise. Frankly, there's no better way to undeceive them than by this particular sermon of our Lord. Now, some of these people, I believe, that are deceived are false prophets. I think some false prophets aren't deceived. They know they are phony. But I think some of them probably are self-deceived. So we'd see some of them in this group. But I think the many in verses 21 and following is not just false prophets, but all of those who are self-deluded and deceived about whether they are really redeemed. You know, I don't have time to get into it because our time is so limited. But the Bible literally is filled with warnings to people who are deceived. Let me just give you one other illustration, Matthew 25, and it's very similar, and I think you'll get the picture. And the reason there are so many warnings. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I never knew you. Not a few, not an isolated bunch, but many. 
And because there are so many that are deceived, there are many warnings. Matthew 25, 1 says, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, who took their lambs and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise, five of them were foolish. And they that were foolish took their lambs and took no oil with them. In other words, they had a form of godliness, but they didn't have the power. They didn't have what they needed. They didn't have the heart of it. They didn't have salvation. They just had churchianity. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, they were, there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go out to meet him. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish one said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go rather to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with them to the marriage. And the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Now, there's a similar text to Matthew chapter 7. There's going to be, there's going to come a day when people are going to expect the door to be open and it's going to slam shut forever in their faces. I don't know you. What a fearful thing. So many people think they are saved, think they are safe, and judgment for them is going to be a shock. What lulls people into that deception? What makes people really think they are saved? Let me give you several suggestions. First of all, I think many times it's because they have a false doctrine of assurance. In other words, let's assume that when you were led to Christ, somebody said to you, now, all you have to do to be a Christian is pray this little prayer and say this little formula based on certain statements. You prayed it, you said it, you signed on the dotted line, and as long as you said it, and as long as you prayed it, and as long as you went through the thing, you're saved. And I don't want anybody to ever question that, so forth and so on. And that very often happens, and you have a false sense of assurance. When you lead a person to Christ, you should never say, now I know you are saved. And don't you ever doubt it. And don't you ever let anyone else cause you to doubt it. You are saved. I've heard people even say, if you ever ask Jesus into your life a second time, you are denying something that belongs to God. You are denying the permanence of his salvation. You are questioning God's integrity. You are in a sense casting against God that which he has said as if it weren't true. Don't ever do that. Just accept it. You signed, you said it. You signed the dotted line. And that's not true. If you feel in your heart that you want to invite Jesus to become the Lord and Savior of your life and you've done it before, do it again. Don't let somebody somebody's false assurance, somebody's false certification take the place of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. 
the convicting work of the Spirit of God. And I think a lot of times in our evangelism, as long as somebody says the prayer and prays the little thing and signs on the dotted line and has the card stuck in their Bible, we give them this little psychological game that they don't ever have to worry about whether they are saved or not. When the Spirit of God never did that in the beginning because they never were really right. I can't ever say to someone, I know you're saved and don't you ever doubt it and don't ever ask again. It's all settled and it's done because you said the little formula. If I do that, I give them a psychological assurance of something I don't even know is true. When Jesus said the seed of the word is cast on four soils, only one out of four turn out to be true. Don't go around certifying people's salvation. You give them a false assurance. Let God give them assurance when they add to their faith virtue. And as they add to their faith virtue, patience and godliness and love, then shall their election be sure. Then shall they know they've been forgiven of their sin. Then shall they not be blind to the reality of salvation. That's God's work, not some certification by some human being. But I think a lot of people have been told they are saved, so they believe it. Another thing I think lulls people into this deception is a failure of self-examination. They never really examine themselves. They get into such a grace concept that everything is grace and everything is forgiveness and they shall really, they shall, they, they never really bother to face their sin. They hear somebody say, well, you don't have to confess your sin. Your sin's already forgiven. It's all taken care of. Everything is set aside. Don't even worry about that. Just go on, live your life. It's almost, it almost borders on an attitude against the law of God. And people get to the place where they don't even bother to examine their lives. Why do you think the Lord brings us to the table? Why do you think the Lord brings us to his table in 1 Corinthians 11? over and over and over and over again in order that a man may examine himself. Second Corinthians 13, 5 says, you better examine yourself whether you be in the faith. If you don't, you are in danger of self-deception. You need to look at your sin. You need to look at your motives. Thirdly, another thing that I think causes people to be under the delusion that they are saved is a fixation on religious activity. In other words, they go to church, they hear sermons, they sing songs, they read the Bible, they go to Bible study, they take a class. And because they are all wrapped up in religious activity, they think they are saved. But that's a very, very great illusion. A very great illusion. There are many in church that are not. Tears among wheat. And the fourth area that I think lulls people into deception is what I call the fair exchange approach. And this is where whenever you see something wrong in your life, instead of really dealing with it and examining whether you are really a true Christian, instead of dealing with what's wrong in your life, you find something right in your life and you make a fair exchange. Oh, I can't be that bad, you say. I mean, look what I did over there. Look what I did over here. See? And you're always trading off the negatives and the positives. And instead of really evaluating your life honestly, with integrity and saying, am I a believer? And if I am, can I be doing this? You say, well, I don't, I, 
I know I don't I do that but oh look what I did over here and you make a fair exchange and you whitewash the deal I mean it's amazing to me how many people are deceived look at the homosexual movement who say well we are Christians we are born again and they can recite the creed and they can tell you the day they were saved and they can show you the card where they wrote the line and they can say we believe in Jesus Christ and so forth and so on but the bottom line is this with all of your false assurance with all your failure to self-examine with all this fixation on religious activity and with the fair exchange principle in operation the bottom line that the bottom line that you'd better examine is this do you leave it in total obedience to the word of god and when you disobey it is there a sense of conviction and remorse that draws you to confess it to god and if that isn't there there's a fair question about whether you are even a christian because the one who comes into the kingdom in verse 21 says verse 21 says is the one who is the one not who says but the one who does and when these homosexuals or whoever comes along and says we are christians my answer to that is if you were you wouldn't do what you do and defend it we have the same thing for example in the women's league movement which is so much connected with homosexuality and its origins and at the front le running levels here are women who are going around saying <clears throat> we don't believe the bible anymore the woman is to be elevated and so forth and so on and over the man and all of these things and they say we are christians they say they believe so many of them and yet if you get down to it they are unwilling to submit to the lordship of christ as revealed in his word and it is a lack of obedience that reveals the illusion just take, for example, that whole idea of the women's women movement. I'll probably get into trouble with this on this issue, but I might as well go ahead. I'm amazed how many Christian women are led astray by believing these people who just may claim to be Christians but are so utterly deluded. And then there are some who don't claim to be Christians at all, and they are actually leading the parade. And here are Christian women following the parade led by godless kinds of people. I think there are a lot of people who are deluded about who really is a Christian. When so-called Christians advocate following that kind of movement, they just don't know what's really leading their movement. That's part of the delusion. If you argue with scripture, if you twist the scripture, if you manipulate the scripture, if you force the scripture to say what you want it to say, you are not doing the will of the Father. You are imposing your own will on the word of God. And you may be a part of the many, not the few. You have failed, perhaps to come through the narrow gate. You come through the narrow gate. You know the law of God is perfect and you're imperfect. You come through the narrow gate. You know there is a righteous standard that you can't live up to. And instead of coming through with pride and egotism and demanding your rights, you come through with repentance, confession, humility, brokenness, 
contrition of heart and submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They are, there are many people deceived. Many. <clears throat> Few find it. Few find the narrow gate. And the deceived come in a couple of categories. I think in the, in the church, apart from the hypocrites who aren't deceived, they are phony and they know it, but they are trying to live up to their wife's standard or having to appear religious for whatever reason. But apart from hypocrites, there are two categories of people in the church, the superficial and the involved. The superficial are the ones who call themselves Christians because when they were little, they went to church or Sunday school or they got confirmed or made a decision for Christ. And you hear very often people, when they get baptized, say, well, I received Christ when I was 12, but my life was a mess after that. And now I want to get back to that. Well, <clears throat> the truth probably is that they never received Christ at all when they were 12. They went through some religious activity and these are the superficial. These are the superficial. They come to church now. They were somewhere in the background, raised in religion, and they come on Christmas and Easter, and they come to weddings and funerals and think they are Christians. They are the superficial who are deceived. Then there are the involved who are deceived, and they are, they are a much more subtle and serious group. They are in the church up to their neck involved, and they know the gospel, they know the theology, but they don't obey the word of God. They live in a constant state of sinfulness. How does a deceived person know he's deceived? How can we spot such a person? Let me give you some key, some keys, and I want you to listen to these. Not everyone in these key keys that I'm going to give you is really deceived, but these are good indicators that someone might be deceived if you want to spot someone who is deceived. Look first of all for someone who is seeking feelings blessings, experiences, healings, angels, miracles. Why? Chances are they are more interested in the byproducts of the faith than they are in the faith itself. They are more interested in what they can get, what they can get than the glory God can get. They are more interested in themselves than in the exaltation of Christ. Secondly, if you are looking for to see who might be deceived, look for the people who are more committed to the denomination, the church, the organization, than to the word of God. Thirdly, look for people who are involved in theology as an academic interest. You'll find them all over the colleges and seminaries of our land. People who study theology, write books on theology, absolutely void of the righteousness of Christ. Theology for them is intellectual activity. Fourthly, Look for people who always seem stuck on one overemphasized point of theology. This is the person who bangs the proverbial drum for their own little area, some crazy quirk. And one other thought, when you look for someone who might be deceived, look for someone who is overindulgent in the name of grace, overindulgent in the name of grace, lacks penitence, a true contrite heart, and so on. Now, they all may be deceived and on the broad road to destruction, thinking all the while they, they are going to heaven. Our Lord warns these people in verses 21 to 27. 
We're going to draw this to a conclusion in a few minutes. I want you to listen. The Lord says in this passage that these people are the deceived. These people think they are on the right road, but they are not. And in and first in, in paragraph, in, in verses 21 to 23, is the folly of empty words. And in verse 24 to 27, like I said, the folly of empty hearts, which we'll discuss ne next podcast. Someone said that our main mission field today is within the church membership itself. Another person said, the true function of the church consists, first of all, in its own regeneration. We are, we've got to get our own act together. We are loaded with people who are filled with empty words. They say, they say, they say, but they don't do God's will. Now, there's something wrong with saying, sorry, there's nothing wrong with saying, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So you've got to say, confession is necessary, but confession without obedience is a sham. It is a sham. You know what it means to profess Christ? Absolutely nothing. If your life doesn't back it up. That's why Peter said, what he said, if you can, can't add to your faith virtue, then you are not going to know you are really redeemed. That's what James meant when he said, faith minus works equals zero. It's dead. Profession is valueless. In fact, I believe that to profess Christ and to proclaim Christ invalidly is taking the Lord's name in vain in the ultimate sense. I don't think taking the Lord's name in vain is saying Jesus Christ or God out on the streets. That's one way, of course. But the epitome of violating God's name is to claim Christ when he, when he isn't yours. G. Campbell Morgan has said it well. The blasphemy of the sanctuary is far more awful than the blasphemy of the slum. It is a Judas kiss to say, Lord, Lord, and then disobey. This is a Judas kiss. We must be consumed with doing the will of God. That's why the prayer says, thy will be done. Not only in heaven, but where? In earth. And that means through me. You might say, well, Tunde, what about if I don't do it? If I fail? The prayer goes on to say, forgive us our trespass. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. Yes, we know that we are going to fail, and but that's where we come for forgiveness. And that's part of the righteous act. The righteous standard Jesus speaks of assumes we'll fail. But when we fail, we'll be there confessing. That's why 1 John 1, 9 says, If we are the ones continually confessing our sins, we give evidence of the ones that are being forgiven. In other words, the ones being forgiven are the ones confessing. He's not saying, here's the perfect standard. If you ever fail, you are out. He's saying, here's the perfect standard. And part of the perfect standard is that when you fail, you deal with it. That's God's standard. And I would dare say that if the Sermon on the Mount is not the direction of your life, not the perfection of it, but if it's not the direction of your life, I don't care what confession you've made. I don't care if you've been baptized or whatever. You are not a Christian. 
You remember in John 6, they said to him, well, what do we do to walk the works of God? And he said, that is the work of God, that you believe on him that sent him. Where do you start with the will of God? Believe on Christ. The only thing acceptable to God is a righteousness that is the product of repentance, faith in Jesus Christ, and that produces good works. And if that's not there, no matter what you say, it doesn't matter. It absolutely doesn't matter. And so the Lord says in verse 23, if I can paraphrase, not for one single moment have I acknowledged you as my own or known you intimately. You are forever expelled from my presence because you continue to walk lawlessness. Shocking. And what makes that shocking? And I want you, I want to just do this in closing. What makes this so shocking is that he, the claims they make are amazing. Look at verse 22. Lord, Lord, we prophesied. We cast out demons. We did wonderful works. Three words, prophecy, exorcism, and miracles. It sounds like much of what what's claimed in the charismatic movement today. And you know something? Some people who claim that will be legitimate. There have been some who were true prophets. Some who truly, in the name of Jesus Christ, cast out the enemy. Some that God used to do marvelous things, mighty things. But there are plenty who are going to claim it and it isn't true. That's not going to do it. Now, the question always comes up and I want you and I want to deal with it just briefly. Some people say, well, I mean, did they really do this? Did they really preach, prophesy? Did they really cast out demons? Did they really do mighty works? There's three alternatives. Number one, they did by God's power. Number two, they did by Satan's power. Number three, they didn't. They just faked it. All three could be true. You say, even if they're unbelievers, it could be true? Yes. Do you know what God has worked through unbelievers? Look back in the Old Testament and you'll find that God has actually worked his work through unbelievers. For example, in Numbers 23, 5, and the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth, says Peter. Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness. He was unrighteous. He was an unrighteous, evil prophet for hire. But God used his mouth. There have been many times when God has even walked through unregenerate people. I suppose you would have to say the crucifixion of Christ was one of those monumental moments. 1 Samuel 10, 10, 11. The apostate king of Israel, who was by no means righteous, of him, it says, the Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied. Amazing. Siapas, in John 11, 51, 52, the Lord put a prophecy in the mouth of that vile high priest so that he prophesied the death of Christ for all men. Secondly, it's possible that they may have done wonderful things and cast out demons and preached under the power of Satan. For Satan can express his power. Satan can express his power he expressed his power on Job, didn't he? In death, destruction, and disease. No question about it. You know that there are the sons of Sceva in Acts 19 that actually went around casting out devils. Jesus even acknowledged that the Jews had the ability when he said, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, who do you cast demons out through? He was recognizing that perhaps they had even done that and that you could cast out demons. 
Perhaps some righteous Jews did it by the power of God. Perhaps some unrighteous Jews did it by the power of Satan. And then there is, there's a whole area of just plain fakery. And I think that's what's cooking up in Egypt. The magicians of Egypt who were trying to mimic the miracles of Moses were just piling off fake things when they reproduced what Moses did. I think it was just their own little magic. I call it magic shop stuff, tricks. The point is these people. These people are going to say, we preached and we cast out demons and we did mighty works. And maybe some of them were used by God to do that. If God will use Balaam's ass, he'll use anything. Maybe they did it by the power of the devil masquerading as God. White magic. Maybe it was just plain old hocus pocus like most healers that you see today. The point is, isn't how they did it. The point is, were they deceived? They thought it was God, but it wasn't God. It wasn't God. I think there are a lot of people today preaching, a lot of people casting out devils, a lot of people healing, a lot of people doing other stuff that they believe is God and it isn't God. And a lot of people believe that. They say, oh yes, it's the Lord. It must be God. And it's nothing but satanic tricks or trickery. But the point is simply this. No matter what they say, no matter what they claim, no matter what miracles and wonders and stuff they've said, they've seen, Jesus says, you are not qualified to be in my kingdom. And that's the shock because they never came through the narrow gate. Never. What a devastating thing. Well, to make a mere verbal profession is not enough. Next po podcast, we'll find out to hear is not enough either. May you walk in the spiritual subsequently. Father, thank you for this word to us. We hear the words in our hearts of Jeffrey O'Hara's anthem. Why call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things I say? You call me the way and walk me not. You call me the life and leave me not. You call me master and obey me not. If I condemn thee, blame me not. You call me bread and eat me not. You call me truth and believe me not. You call me Lord and serve me not. If I condemn thee, blame me not. End quote. And we cannot blame you, Lord, for condemning those who say but don't do, for they give evidence of not being a part of the kingdom. May no one go from this podcast in that category. O oh Lord, we pray that as we honestly examine our own hearts, that we might know we are in the, in the faith. Do your work in our hearts. In Christ's name. Amen. <music>